And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Jordan Baller. He is a senior research fellow at the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Dr. Baller, it's great to have you on with us today. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thank you. You know, you just wrote an article a couple of weeks back that was published in The Public Discourse. Its title was Leo Thirteenth, Abraham Kuyper, and the Foundations of Modern Christian Social Thought. We find it very interesting to better understand things like this. Um, you know, what is the ripple effect or the whatever of Christian conviction upon society, and how do these two realms relate so um, maybe get us started at least. Um, what do we mean by Christian social thought? Maybe we could start there. Sure. Um, by Christian social thought, I mean to refer to that, that large and diverse body of teaching, reflection, writing, exhortation throughout Christian history that deals particularly with problems of our social life. So the second part of the, the second of the two great love commandments, for example that we love our neighbor as ourselves. How do we work that out in the various contexts the Church has been placed throughout history? And this article is really about the, what I'm calling the modern version, or the, the most recent um, form of that body of social thought, which goes all the way back to the beginning of, beginnings of the Church, sure. and really focusing on the foundations of that at, towards the end of the 19th century. So going back, uh, the two texts that I'm referring to by Leo XIII, um, the Roman Catholic Pope, at the end of the 19th century, and Abraham Kuyper, the Reformed Dutch theologian at the end of the 19th century. The two texts actually date from 1891, so it was 125 years ago um, <laughs> as of 2016. That's really neat. Um, I'm a little bit familiar with Kuyper, and uh, I think yeah. most of our listeners have heard his famous quote where he says, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And um, yet I'm not too familiar with Leo the Thirteenth, you know, coming from the Protestant tradition here. Sure. Um, so maybe you can help us understand um, their views and um, how they complement each other in terms of property and stewardship, let's say. Yeah, so, so Leo was uh, the Pope at the end of the 19th century, um, f- famous for a number of things. One of them is inaugurating what has come to be called the social encyclical tradition. So um, popes write various kinds of letters. One of those kinds of letters are called, uh, uh, forms of letters are called encyclicals. Those um, fit in in a hierarchy of authoritative teachings in the Church towards the top. Um, and in 1891, Leo published an encyclical called Rerum Novarum. Encyclicals typically take their names from the first couple words um, or a key phrase from within the, the encyclical. So that's Latin for on the new things, which or another way of talking about revolution. So um, it, this was published in the middle of the year in 1891, and Leo is trying to articulate um, the Church's response to revolutions of various kinds, um, going all the way back to, say, the American or the French Revolution, but particularly and more approximately the Industrial Revolutions and social revolutions that were sweeping the continent, the European continent, in the 19th century. So that came out in the summer of 1891. Abraham Kuyper is uh, a Dutch 
theologian, as, as I've said before, uh, was a pastor, helped to form a university, the Free University in the Netherlands in Amsterdam. Um, also was a, was a newspaper man. He, he was an editor of a weekly and a daily newspaper, helped to form what really could be considered the first modern political party in, in Europe, uh, the Anti-Revolutionary Party. So he was involved in, a, in almost all of those square inches that you mentioned before. He was trying to <laughs> articulate what, what, what God's will was um, overall, the, the entire cosmos, and particularly with respect to ver- the variety of social issues. In 1891, um, there was a, a, a ferment for some kind of social witness, some kind of social action in the Netherlands. And so there is a, a Christian social congress that was held in the early parts of November of that year, and Kuiper provided the opening address to this. This has been translated into English from the Dutch um, popularly in previous editions. It was called The Problem of Poverty. The Dutch title is actually The um, the Social Question in the Christian Religion, and Kuiper's trying to set the stage for bringing uh, our particularly Christian and then even more specifically Reformed Protestant perspective on this, although he... Um, very clearly, and one of the things that, that we've done is bring out this, this text in the new edition, is dealing very closely with a variety of other Christian traditions and their reflections on the social question. So Kuiper refers explicitly to Leo the Thirteenth's writing mm-hmm. that had come out earlier in the year and things like that. So um, they're both kind of foundational. What I've argued is that, is, um, that they're, they're really foundational texts in setting forth a vision for the human person in the modern world. Um, that is increasingly complex and faced with all kinds of challenges, including technological advances and things like this. So, I mean, we're 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 well beyond the advances that they were facing in the in the late nineteenth century in terms of the industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. But many of the dynamics are the same in terms of the of the changing demographics and landscape and, and these sorts of things. Yeah, they really are. Um, I, I'm sensitive on on an issue um, simply because of where I find myself in history right now uh, regarding property, um, sure. where, where um, the socialistic tendency among some folks, uh, even in America, would be to minimize uh, property ownership and that sort of thing, and uh, increasingly taking over property by the state, and you know, basically the state sticking its nose into every possible realm. It seems. Um, but there's a balance, isn't there? You, your article talks about property and stewardship. So let's say we, we have property, and let's say we, we have a society in which private ownership is, is revered and, and honored. Um, we don't want to go to the other extreme where we become very selfish and we're not stewards of our resources in such a way to bless our fellow man in keeping with that commandment that you talked about of loving neighbor, right? Well, this is one of the one of the key points that Leo and Kuiper agree on and take as their point of departure: a vision of the human person, um, which is different from the reigning ideologies that are on offer at the time. And you mentioned one of those, a kind of materialistic socialism that focused uh, that preached a kind of gospel. Uh, at one point, Leo calls it a message of envy and an attempt to undo material inequalities in a radical way. Yeah, that's a good description. That was one of the ideologies that Kuiper and Leo opposed very vigorously. 
And then on the other side is, is a kind of a radical individualism where the social bonds, the social responsibilities that we have as human beings created in God's image, commanded to love Him above all and, and our neighbors as ourselves, that that eradicates or tends to dissolve those bonds. So here we're thinking, we can think especially of the kind of moral responsibilities that we have towards other people, um, and that viewed individuals as atomistic, really, um, separated from one another. And so these are the two kinds of extremes that both Leo and Kuiper identify as the reigning, what you could call worldly or secular ideologies of the day. And as an alternative to that, they want to articulate a Christian vision of the human person and social life that arises out of uh, the Bible, as well as the reflections of Christian tradition mm-hmm. and insights of natural law and things like this, into the way that's, that God's, God has designed us to live together and, and His will for our lives. Mm. So uh, Leo locates the beginnings of his answer to this social problem, the social question, in the in the in the idea of private. So he speaks in glowing terms about the need for respect for private property against the doctrines of uh, various kinds of socialism. He roots this in part um, in the dignity of the human person, the rights of the human person to go out and work productively and provide for his or her family. Um, and this is a right that has to be respected. And if the, if the individual worker doesn't have property rights, um, then the whole social order is going to be threatened because nobody will have the security of being able to provide for their family, their, the dignity that they feel in terms of their place within the family, and then the broader social order will be undone. So it has all kinds of cascading effects if we don't start with a def- an understanding of the the natural order of private property and how that relates to the human person and work and the dignity of work. Mm, that's helpful. The other side of it, as you mentioned, is that with that property comes responsibility. So with blessings come uh, responsibility to use those uh, blessings, especially material ones, but of, of all kinds, the talents we could think of in a variety of ways, in a stewardly way. So to use our reason, to use God's commandments, to use any means that we have to serve God by serving our neighbors. So there's a moral aspect to the to private property that, that is often overlooked as well. Um, so this is why property and stewardship go together on this view. And really, if you only have one or the other... Uh, you you have half the story, and it's, it, it tends it, it results in a kind of a, a dangerous tendencies. So, if you only emphasize private property, you know you can have a, a very a society that uh, uh, is characterized by uh, isolated individuals, increasingly turning away from from other people. Um, both Leo and Kuiper really, really emphasize the the importance of giving and charitable giving. Um, on the other side, if you don't if you don't recognize private property and just talk about the common good and and those sorts of things, you're going to end up uh, with a society that um, unjustly levels everyone, um, places increasing power in the state to redistribute things, and um, so Leon Piper, I think, acutely recognized the dangers of both of these two dangers or temptations or, or alternative perspectives which really are still with us, as you said today, 125 years later. So 
the details have changed, the names have changed, but much of the reigning way that people think about the social order really is still this kind of left-right dichotomy, you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just a quick comment, and that is uh, charitable giving. Um, that really flows from, uh, in our case, we're talking about Christian here, uh, a Christian heart that has a love for God and love for neighbor, and it and it should not flow from the state um, legislating our charitable giving. That's that's right. So, um, you know, they'll both recognize that the state has a, a kind of last resort type of role. It has an ordering role. Right. One of the principles that arises out of these writings, and there are many that I, I talk about in the essay and then the introduction to a, a volume that we publish that includes the text of these writings, one of these is, is the idea of subsidiarity. That's typically understood as the Roman Catholic term for it. Um, Kuiper talks about sphere sovereignty, which is a complementary um, understanding, and that is basically that, in terms of subsidiarity, that, that help needs to come when things are broken. Right. But it needs to come in such a way that it respects the agency and the autonomy and the responsibility of whatever the institution is or the person is that's broken. So it's a principle that respects a diversity of institutions, their reality, their right to exist, but then also gives you some guidance for how to help and where help should come from when things are not working right. Mm -hmm. And so the state does have a role in... Uh, helping, but it has to do so in such a way that respects the dignity of all these other kinds of institutions and, um, you know, understanding state aid as a kind of a last resort is a good way of thinking about it. So um, if something's going on in your family, uh, maybe with your your son or daughter or child, right, hopefully they'll come to you first, right, as the parent, because that's the most proximate relationship. So subsidiarity is about proximity in this way, too that it respects the, the closeness of relationships, the intimacy of relationships. And if you can't help, then, the, you know, you, you, you turn to the next kind of institution, whatever's closest. Uh, maybe it's a neighborhood association, maybe it's a church. Um, and then once, once you've exhausted all the possibilities and maybe the problem isn't being fixed, then maybe you have to turn to some other kinds of institutions, uh, maybe commercial institutions. The market can be a place where we can solve some problems. Uh, and then maybe you do have to turn to government, but if you do, turn to the form of government that's closest to you, yeah. right? So you start with the local government, then move up. And so the idea of subsidiarity helps us think about problems being solved at the most appropriate level, wherever possible. No, oh, that's helpful, yeah. Yeah, it was a new term to me, um, subsidiarity, and yeah. uh, one of your comments here is that it's a principle aimed at respecting social diversity. I thought that was very interesting, and it captures this idea that that different people have different gifts and skills and strengths and whatnot. And um, you know what? I'm not sure that um, the modern tendency to try to level all inequality is really a good thing. Inequality seems to flow from the giftings of individuals. Right. So this is another, um, I think, key point where Leo and Kuiper present an alternative to this modern kind of understanding of, of equality, and that is, Given the Christian doctrine of creation, uh, and Kuiper uh, waxes eloquently about this, both in this particular piece from 1891 as well as in other places, that um, God really has cr- diversity is not a fact of the fall. It's not a. It's not a. It's not um, 
a result of the fall, but it's mm-hmm. embedded in creation, in social relationships as such. And he points to the differentiation between male and female, man and woman, Adam and Eve, as his understanding of it. And he says there, the seeds of all the kinds of uh, diversity that we see in human, in social life, is there embedded right there at the beginning. Uh, so the ideas of complementarity and ideas of, you know, mutual service and different kinds of giftings and things like that are there in the beginning. Now, those differences in these natural diversities, you could say, are exacerbated, um, exaggerated, distorted by the fall in ways that are problematic and, and need to be addressed. But the fundamental push for um, absolute equality in a kind of... Uh, undifferentiated sense is really misguided and idolatrous from this perspective because it ignores the created intentions for God that God has for human beings to be able to serve one another by having different kinds of gifts and having different ways of thinking about things. And Kuiper sees this really as a kind of a a historical vision that, that, um, that works out by means of common grace, another one of his, his kind of uh, characteristic Mm -hmm. doctrines Mm -hmm. through human history. We, you know, this diversity does allow progress to be made in various kinds of ways because people have have room and the ability and the freedom to, to bring their gifts to bear in service of others in very creative ways that maybe, you know, as human beings we couldn't predict or or see coming. How would you, maybe you already did this, but in simple terms, how would you describe, what does Kuiper mean by sphere sovereignty? So I, I mentioned it earlier just in passing as a kind of a complementary principle, to subsidiarity. By sphere sovereignty, Kuiper means to talk about how um, God has created not just individuals, but actually has institutions or orders or social realities in mind when he creates, because he creates human beings as social beings, and we create institutions in some way, or, or our life reflects, better, better you could say, our life reflects the social reality that God has embedded and willed. So you could think of um, a family the church, government, uh, different kinds of en- uh, commercial enterprises, voluntary organizations, all kinds of institutions that, that are a reflection of the social nature of the human person. Uh, for Kuiper, these all have an inherent dignity and authority um, that is not derived from something else. In some way, God has willed them directly and mm-hmm. authorized them directly to exist. So, sphere sovereignty is a is a principle of social order that respects, in this in an analogous way to subsidiarity, the diversity of and complexity of social life. So, uh, when you recognize there is a problem, you have to uh, take steps to correct the problem within the context of understanding how all of these things ought to fit together, and that they have. They shouldn't be subsumed within something else, that, that one sphere shouldn't tyrannize another, but that each have their own legitimate but circumscribed area of authority in existence, and one that's not simply derived from the will of the people or the will of the king or the will of the, the civil magistrate or, who, or even the, the, the members of the community, but that God has actually willed it to be mm-hmm. uh, to, into existence in some way. So um, in Kuiper's understanding... I. I want to ask this too. Um, he was, I believe, he was a minister of Word and Sacrament. That's correct. Yeah. Um, but he also felt that he had a complete freedom 
to get involved in politics, and and that's how it fleshed out, apparently. Well, so, yeah, so uh, his biography is very interesting this way. He was um, originally uh, became a minister and was a, was a modernist, so did not believe in traditional Orthodox Christian doctrines. And then um, for, through a variety of, of providential <laughs> encounters, um, came to an Orthodox understanding and rejected his, the, the modernism that he had been taught at, in the university. This happened while he was a pastor. As he's working out um, his own giftings, which were manifold, uh, he was a genius in many ways, he became to be involved in a number of things, including church politics. So one of the main things that Kuiper um, is, is known for is in essentially leading, an, um, leading a departure from the established church of the time. So he, started, he essentially helped to start a new denomination. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, his vision was a free church. Um, because he thought that this was, you know, certainly in the modern context where you've got the complexities of democracy and uh, a, a more diverse social order, the church should not be established in the way that it was in a kind of a, a model and under Christendom, a kind of a, a, a Christendom model or more, an older understanding of the way that the church and the, and the, the state relate. So he helped to lead an exodus. This was sort of part of his church political involvement. Um, and then, as I mentioned, he, he founded a, a, a university, the Free University in Amsterdam, which, which still exists today. Um, and then he began to be involved politically, as we mentioned as well. His point of departure for politics was, was the education question. So um, there, was, there were constitutional barriers to funding for schools that taught um, Orthodox Christian, in accordance with what you could call Orthodox Christian, uh, an Orthodox Christian worldview, mm-hmm. Orthodox Reformed worldview. So this was the the entree point into a political uh, activity. He helps uh, form the Anti Revolutionary Party, which the revolution there there that's being referenced is the French Revolution, which is. Uh, a, a kind of a, an image for what you could call this this complex of both socialist and um, indiv- radical individualist ideology. So this new party is, is aimed at combating the dominance of this political ideology in the social order, and specifically politics. Um, is involved in organizing this party, um, eventually becomes prime minister, um, in 1901, and is prime minister of the Netherlands from 1901 to 1905. Now, in the process, he he does step down. So he 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 um, he, uh, he resigns his ordination. I, I, he, well, however you want to phrase it, <laughs> he he um, <laughs> he's no longer practicing as an ordained minister as sure. as he increasingly becomes a politician. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about his view of the church in an institutional and organic or or uh, dynamic sense, if you'd like. But um, so he does see that there's there's a um, a division of labor, so to speak, between the institutional church and civil government. And at the same time, Christians are called to engage positively and follow Christ in all of these areas. And as his career progresses, he becomes increasingly a a politician in the Mm -hmm. civil sense and not just the ecclesiastical sense. I, uh, I'm looking at the clock and realize we got about two minutes left. Um, so I, I think we, um, we should connect again sometime. Um, sure. Now, um, what about the person out there that says, oh, you guys, you're all theoretical. Um, I'm, I'm out here. I just lost my job, and my friend is homeless. 
And my other friend has got a broken home and the crime rate. I just saw my friend murdered down the street in Newburgh, New York. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, any practical suggestions in the last minute or so that would um, incorporate the ideas that we talked about today? Just just incremental changes, improvements, whatever. Yeah. So you don't need to know the name of the principle of subsidiarity to work work it out, right? I mean, we because it's embedded in the way that we are created and, and live, we sort of naturally pursue it anyway. Um, Kuiper, I think, and his his compatriot Herman Bavinck, who was another important Dutch Reformed theologian of his uh, a contemporary, talked a lot about the need for reforming all of society. But they also talked about how it has to start from the bottom up. And really, the only true enduring reformation begins with you. That's the, that's the kind of reformation that you can start right away. You know, working on the spiritual disciplines, engaging the local church in its institutional expression, but also in its organic expression, and being part of a, a, a spiritual community as well as a physical community. Mm-hmm. This is the way that ref- reformation, that social reformation happens in a lasting and meaningful way. Um, so, in a, in a general way, we all have to have to take. We we we, sh- we can't flee from that those kinds of concrete responsibilities that we find ourselves confronted with, right. and are very tempted to do um, today. Well, that's very helpful. Uh, today, we've been honored to talk with Dr. Jordan J. Balor. He's a senior research fellow at the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty where he also serves as executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality. Uh, Dr. Baller, if someone wishes to get a hold of you or to read your writings, where should they go? Our contact information is on, it's on our website, acton.org, A-C-T-O-N.org, and I'd be you know, happy to hear from anybody. Oh, that's perfect. You've been listening to A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. Dear listener, thanks for joining us today. And a, a copy of this interview is up on our website. We're found at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. Please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. God the Spirit.